I'm Jeff Cohen. We all deal with stress and anxiety in our lives, but our next guest, Jason Blau, experienced it so deeply that it ultimately hurt his career, his marriage, and even his relationship with his closest relatives. Today, he's in a much better place and even found a path to Jewish observance along the way. He's here today to share his story, so let's get started. Jason, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. And I just love what you're doing here. It's so important to share these stories and just really excited to be a part of it. Even from the intro, people can already tell there are going to be some serious twists and turns to your story. But let's give our listeners a little context of where your story begins in terms of where you were born and raised. So I was born in Northeast Philadelphia. I have an identical twin brother. And a couple years later, our younger brother was born. We grew up in a traditional row home. That's where you share steps with your neighbor, one bathroom uh, to several people in a home. But it was an incredible upbringing in a semi-Jewish area. Uh, It was a great place to live. We had a lot of fun and uh, have fond memories of, of growing up there. And what kind of Jewish customs were you doing inside your home? Yeah, so we were conservative Jews, which today I wonder what that actually means. Um, But for us, it was about being culturally Jewish, I would say. Uh, We went to shul. We went to a synagogue, which was an incredible part of who we were. We never did Shabbos. My father never made Kiddush. Uh, We observed the holidays in the way that most people, from a secular standpoint, would. We'd light the Hanukkah candles. We'd certainly get one gift for each night of Hanukkah. Uh, And so we convinced our parents at times to give us all those gifts at once, uh, which... (laughs) allow them to then go out and buy more. We figured this out over time. (laughs) We did Seder. We observed Rosh Hashanah. We we did the best that we could in fasting for Yom Kippur. But, you know, what we know now is Judaism wasn't so much ingrained into our upbringing, but there was certainly a space for it. It's funny you talk about doing the fast, like to the best of your ability, like in my house, because I also grew up conservative. My sister and I figured out that our family rule was you didn't have to stop eating at sundown. You had to stop eating when you went to bed. So we would step as late as possible, like two in the morning, eating, eating, and then sleep as late as possible the next morning. And if you like played it right, you really only had to fast for like 90 minutes while you were awake. See, that's good. For, for me, my, my identical twin brother at the time, it was sort of, you eat first. No, you eat first. And if you <laughs> eat first, then I'll eat first. And, you know, that back and forth battle went for potentially hours as well. And, and so I understand the 90 minute fast. And so you talked about going to shul. So that was like every Friday night or on Shabbos day. Or like how frequently were you going? The synagogue was located just about five, six, seven minutes of a drive from where we lived. And we were in a pretty uh, Jewish community. So we would go on Shabbat morning. It was called Shabbat, not Shabbos back then. And it was great. Every congregant of the synagogue would drive. It was the rabbi only who didn't drive. He was sort of like the token religious guy. And it was an incredible shul, this place called Oxford Circle Jewish Community Center. Today, we still speak of that Rabbi Ramorowski and our time there. It was really an incredible place to um, learn how to be Jewish in the real world. So did you know anything about Orthodox Judaism, like that there was a level up from where you were holding as a kid? For us at the time, I think it was us and then those guys wearing the black hat and the you know squiggly things around their ears, right? Today, we know them as payas, but... There wasn't such a graduation of scale, so to speak, in levels of Judaism. We always knew that we were conservative. We were part of the USY, right, the conservative youth group. Uh, It was what we did. It was who we were. And I didn't really have exposure to anything outside of Northeast Philadelphia, other than the Jersey Shore, of course. And so um, it just was what it was. 
today I look back and I wonder, how did we miss it? Because these different levels of, of observance are sort of so evident in, in everyday practice. Yeah, I say that to my friends now in my Orthodox shul that when you're secular, you really just don't know what you don't know. You don't even realize what's going on in that world. And you know so little that you can't even really have a perspective on whether it would be for you what you think about it because you're just not interacting with people like that. Absolutely. You know, we had a bar mitzvah, a b'nai mitzvah at the time, both of us, my brother Scott and I, uh, during the blizzard of 93. This was like a big thing in Philadelphia where it snowed like 50 inches of snow. We had off of school for three weeks. And I recall like sitting on the bima at the time, getting ready to do our Torah reading. And uh, there was a leak above us. And so both of us are being soaked, drenched literally by the, the snow and the rain coming in. And I remember looking like down into the front row and seeing my mom sobbing with tissues and everybody around her consoling her. And we're up on the bema thinking like, well, what's like, what's going on? Like, is she okay? And, you know, the running in the back and the forth to what we now know is her running to make phone calls to cancel the party the next week. And, you know, they felt so bad for us. And we're like, are you kidding me? We get to go out into the snow and play and have off of school. And, and it was like a great memory. And I remembered, you know, you have the bar mitzvah giveaways, right? I had double the fun at Jason and Scott's B'nai Mitzvah, uh, March 13th, 1993. Then we got moved to the next week. And the biggest argument was, well, should we switch the dates on the bag? <laughs> No, that's like a collector's item, like a baseball card that has a mistake on it. So you got to keep it. All right. So then now let's go into post bar mitzvah, because for conservative Jews, that's often like a drop off point because there's not like a next step. So what happened to you after that? We stuck around. You know, like I said, we um, we went through USY, this youth group. In fact, I went on a pilgrimage to Poland with the USY group in 1996. My brother went on one group and I was on the other group and we met each other in Israel. And that was really our first exposure outside of, well, the Jersey Shore, as I said, but also uh, to Israel and to Judaism is like a bigger cultural thing. And um, we had an incredible time. It was one of these trips where they sent us to Poland for a week to see the concentration camps. And then we visited Israel for a few weeks to hike in the north and and uh, and the south and, and, and spend Shabbos in Jerusalem. And so it was an incredible experience for us. At the time, it was eye-opening, right? We came back. We wanted to wear tzitzit and a yarmulke full-time, and that lasted about maybe four or five days. Um, But it was an incredible experience. I had a time when uh, in Israel, I remember, the only thing I wanted to buy was a talus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went knowing that I wanted like a talus that had a white, just white on white, everything to be white. And I walked into a a store. I wish I knew the name of it today because I would somehow contact the owner. But I remember going to the store and saying to the owner, you know, I'm looking for this, this talus. This is the first or second day we we arrived and and spent time in Jerusalem. And the store owner said, you know, I have just the thing. And he takes me through the twists and the turns of the store, right in the back corner, on the back shelf, and the the bottom on the way back. He pulls from this container, this beautiful white talus. And he says, is this what you're talking about? And I said, absolutely, this, that's it. Like, that is exactly what I came to Israel for. And he's like, if you like it, take it, it's yours. I said, well, you know, not so fast. Mom and dad only gave us a certain amount of spending money. And if I blow it all here on this talus, I'm going to have very little money to spend on ice cream as we uh, go through our trip. And he says, no, 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 if you really like it, take the talus. I said, no, no, you're not understanding me. Like, I'll come back. You know, I'm sure he's heard that a million times. And he says, no, I, I want you to take the talus. If you like the talus, take the talus. And after a few sort of like back and forth with him about this, he finally made me aware, like, literally take it. It's yours. He says, and when you get home, have your father send me a check. I took the talus. <laughs> I walked out of the store. 
I know we sent the check. I remember like the whole conversation around this, but yet I have no idea if it ever got it. And it was sort of this, if the check isn't sent, it's on you. And only Hashem knows. And at the time I remember thinking like, who's this Hashem you keep talking of? <laughs> and today I still dive in with that talus every morning, which is really cool and special all these years later. Wait, couldn't your dad have told you whether it was cashed or not? You know what? I should ask him. I'm sure the <laughs> bank records go back, you know? Everyone who's listening to this is saying, this is the simple thing to solve. Either it was cashed or it wasn't. I don't know. It was in, you know, 96. It wasn't so easily accessible. Fair enough. You couldn't just go on your phone and see in seconds. Good point. Exactly. All right. So it's interesting you talk about wanting to wear a kippah and TT coming back from Israel, because I've interviewed people who work in Kirov, and they say when people get turned on like that in Israel, if they don't come back to an infrastructure that can support them growing religiously, it does fall off within days. And you just said like within a week that you didn't have the surrounding support structure to keep going. Yeah, I think it was, you know, should we wear the yarmulke to school on Monday morning or not? You know, we were in these public schools in Northeast Philadelphia. It was not so easy. It was a rough place to go. I think my brother lasted a couple more days than me. I'll, <laughs> I'll give him credit for it. All right. So now let's keep the story going. You're, this is happening sort of in the high school years. So you're starting to think about college at this point and what you want to do for a living or at least what you want to study and where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that summer was really sort of the ramping up of moving towards, you know, this application process and going towards college. That year, rather than really trying to apply for colleges, I spent the majority of my time in doctor's offices as it related to eventually what was diagnosed as Crohn's disease, inflammation in the intestines, which is uh, activated through like a parasite, which the doctors later told me could have been from some bad shawarma there in Israel. Now, this is not a caution to, to eating great food in Israel, but, but certainly something that stuck with me, like, hey, I went to Israel, I had this great experience, but here I did coming back with doubled over stomach pains. And that really moved me into my college years. I went to a local university called Westchester University, uh, where I was able to come home back and forth to see doctors. And it was about 45 minutes from from where we lived, which I always said was further enough to say, hey, I can't come home this weekend, uh, but also close enough to get a home-cooked meal or get laundry done. <laughs> and um, I had a great experience there. It was really an incredible uh, experience. I fell into this work of, of being a DJ for bar mitzvahs and weddings and sweet 16s and um, was able to you know work while I put myself through school and have some freedom and flexibility. And so what were you studying and what were you hoping to be post-graduation? Yeah, we don't know what we don't know. And for me, I didn't really know much of college. It wasn't such a big thing in our family. I always knew my father was in sales. And I thought, well, that, that looks good. He seems to be making okay money. I should ask him that too now. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the time, it seemed okay. Like we were doing okay as like a middle-income family. And so I realized that sales wasn't such a major, but marketing was. And I was always interested in, in being an entrepreneur. I've started a few companies uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about over time. And um, even from a young age with, with my brother, we always tried different things to see if we can take it apart and put it together in a different way and, and sell it to somebody for an extra dollar. But really, I went to study marketing and to uh, be like my father, get into sales. That seemed to be uh, something that suited my, my nature and my personality, and I was, I was excited to do so. And so what was that first job you landed? It sounds like you were heading that direction. I'm guessing that is what happened post-college. Yeah, in fact, I remember getting a internship at my father's company, believe it or not. How'd you get the, that job? <laughs> you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> it was great, you know. Oh, you're you know, you're Jerry's son and and I see the resemblance and you sound just like him. And it was sort of like, okay, like I, I set out to be like my father and here I am. 
at the time I was I was having fun and and making money, you know, and I learned the ropes. I learned how to cold call and to pick up the phone and to ask people questions and to listen to the answer, which is something I think some of us have hard times doing at times. And it was it was a lot of fun uh, as a beginning career. And and my career followed suit. I, I went to a company called ADP, selling payroll services, a commodity sale, really gaining a lot of responsibility in a territory. And that was my first spout with uh, competition and what they called stack rankings, right? Every month they would rank the sales reps from one to you know 50, and you're either at the top or the bottom. And then went from there and had an incredible experience moving into medical device sales, uh, which is where I really stayed for, for the next 15 years. So let's now bring in two other pieces of your story because you can see how your career is taking off. Where are you holding Jewish-wise and are you starting to date and think about moving towards marriage at this point? Yeah, so Jewish-wise, I'm Jewish. And that's just about it. I remember during college, we spoke of Judaism. We had friends, I had friends that were Jewish. We would light candles in the dorm rooms, right? So there was Judaism as it related to the way I was brought up. And we continued to do those same things. In fact, I remember during college, uh, bringing some friends home for Passover Seder and uh, having sort of that experience with them. When I came home from college, I moved in with my brother for a very short period of time. We realized that we weren't such good roommates. Woommates, yes, but not roommates. <laughs> Several years later, we were uh, both very particular in the way that we liked our stuff kept, and uh, arguments you know, ensued from there. And I remember moving in with a friend in a little area outside of Philadelphia and then downtown to Philadelphia, Center City, Philly, and had a great time hanging out in the city. And while I was in medical device sales, I went to uh, Temple University Hospital. Uh, that's where I ultimately met my now ex-wife while doing a sales presentation. I left some business cards behind. I remember that day I brought Primo Hoagies. If you know anything about Philadelphia and, and Hoagies, a great you know sandwich with, with cold cuts, we called them. Uh, it's all about the bread, and this place had the best bread. And I remember that was my go-to lunch. I didn't do it too often, but when I did, uh, I brought Primo's. And I remember her taking my business card and sending me an email like, hey, I was in that lunch. Uh, do you remember me? And of course, yeah, absolutely. Although I didn't. And, and we met up a couple of blocks from where my, my apartment was in the city in what feels like forever ago. And by the way, we didn't talk about this before the interview, but I went to the University of Pennsylvania. So I know what a hoagie is. Okay, good. And I had to learn that term because I grew up calling it a sub sandwich and had to understand there's different no, terminology. They will boo you right out of Philadelphia <laughs> for calling it a sub. I also will admit I know what a cheesesteak is, but Good. I don't talk about that anymore. Right, yeah, me either. All right, so let's go into kind of the courtship of you meet someone through your work and how that relationship takes off and, and leads towards marriage. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we dated for a while. I was working in medical device sales, living downtown, dating, and starting a business, right? Being an entrepreneur was my first sort of stint. I created a website, a portal for all things Philly, things that weren't so out in the open and up front, sort of like the underground aspects of art and music. Uh, so I was putting a lot of time and energy and, and effort into this, spending money, thought as a salesperson I could get advertisers and you know play that game and uh, had some fun. We, we lived downtown for quite some time. I dated my now ex-wife for almost two years and uh, we got married. She was Jewish. I thought, hey, I did it. Married a Jewish woman. She was from Pittsburgh and we moved into the suburbs like everybody kind of did, bought the Volvo and the Ford, I parked those in the new driveway in the town home, and we were doing great. We brought Judaism into our home. We were married, 
in a reform way. We had a ketubah, although I didn't realize until recently that uh, those people who signed the ketubah should be keeping Shabbos and other things like that. And it was definitely a part of us. It was certainly a part of our home. Uh, we were not lighting Shabbos candles or doing that, but we certainly hosted you know, a meal here for the holidays in our, in our beautiful home at the time. And so the way you're setting up the story, moving to the suburbs, having the car, it sounds like the white picket fence kind of story. You have a great job. Like everything seems to be lining up for you. But I think our listeners can tell from the introduction, it doesn't quite go that way. So how does it start to turn in a different direction from what you thought your life was going to be? So I was stressed. I was really stressed. I was really, really stressed. You know, here I am in a new marriage, trying to come together with another person. And then a few years into our marriage, we decide that, you know, it's time to try to have a child. And so I decided, you know what? What's best for us and for my career is to add more into my life, which was to go and get a master's degree, which I wound up finding a program, which met locally to my home. It was actually a Penn State, a Smeal College of Business MBA where we would meet every other weekend. And I thought, you know what? How bad can this be? And, uh, and I started. We, I decided to you know, keep the medical device sales job, bring on the MBA, and then, and then our baby was born in, in 2013, uh, who's now nine, my daughter Lexi. And um, it was just so much. It was so much. I put so much on my plate. And on the outside, I think I held it together. But on the inside, I was dying. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I could barely breathe. And I needed help. I just didn't know where to get it. So in that kind of case, somebody could kind of shut themselves off from the world. They could seek external help. They could turn to medication. Like, how do you start thinking through like a course of action at this point? Yeah. You know, I'd been on and off these sort of medications, the cocktail, I call it, right? The trial and error. They call them SSRIs and, and this one to do that. And um, those seem to always make me feel even worse, right? A guy who is stressed and anxious, you give them medication, which at the time went pretty unmonitored. I remember for me, it wasn't the shutting down or closing off. It was the reaction. I was quick to react. I was angry. I was upset a lot. And that didn't feel good. It wasn't who I am. I just felt like I couldn't control any of this with inside of me. I felt like I was always sort of like jumping out of my skin. And so I remember at one point, uh, everybody around me, my wife at the time, my parents would say, hey, you should go and get some help. And I remember going to a, a local hospital to a uh, psychiatrist who prescribed even more medication and I thought you know what this is not right like this doesn't make sense like how can you see me for 30 or 40 minutes and prescribe medications that are are really mood altering and and at times personality altering and physiologically changing the way that I react and respond and I got pretty upset by that and so I came home one day and decided to take myself off all the medications which is not medically advised. It was really tough. I suffered greatly for weeks. At the time, I was trying to cope, right? And now I have a newborn to the mix. I'm up late at night, right? I'm doing, uh, I'm trying to help out as much as I can and be present and mindful. And I, I just felt like I was so unfocused and, and really all over the place. And that's when I started to find the practice of meditation. That's where things really started to make a bit of a shift. I finished up the NBA. I got great honors there. I did really well. I loved it. And I um, came out of that, that MBA and within two months got fired from my job Aye. violently. It was ugly here one day producing at the top, gone the next. And uh, just a few months later, our marriage started to really crumble and fold. 
Uh, we didn't have the skills. We didn't have the tools to communicate. And then also at the time got in a little scuffle with the neighbor and wound up in court. So it felt like at the time things were really crashing down on me. And luckily I had almost immediately this practice of meditation to fall back on. What are you thinking when you're in this space of, I thought I was going to have a certain life and now my marriage is not what I thought it was going to be. My job is not what I thought it was going to be. Like, what's your thought process at that time? I was utterly alone. I mean, there were people around, but I didn't let anybody in. And so I, in some ways, created this loneliness for myself. I was scared, really scared. I thought, well, wait a second. You know, this is everything I wanted. Like you said, I wanted the the Jewish marriage. I wanted the, the, the money and the house and the cars and the, like you said, the, the white picket fence. And here I am, everything burnt to the ground. I mean, almost overnight. I mean, within a couple of months, but still, it, it just, everything went up. And I found myself thinking, like, how am I going to survive this? And those are scary things to think about. How will I survive? And what will I do? And who can I rely on? And, and starting over seemed almost impossible at that point. I know now that starting over isn't so bad and actually allows you to create differently. But at the time, it was my first experience with this level of what I call destruction. So how did this sort of light of meditation come into your life as, oh, maybe this is my ticket to get back on my feet again? Yeah, I practiced yoga from time to time. And I remember going to a few yoga classes. And when I sat down and thought, like, how can I get myself out of this, like you said earlier, without medication or without you know, numbing myself through drugs or alcohol or whatever, although there was, there was certainly some of that, I remembered, like, wow, yoga made me feel really good. And so I remember picking myself up and getting downtown to Philadelphia to my favorite yoga class with my favorite yoga teacher and I show up and, and she's not there. And instead there was a substitute teacher teaching at the end, she did something called a guided meditation. And after just a few minutes of sitting there in stillness and silence, I thought, what was that? You know, and how do I get more of it? I just literally set out to answer that question. What is meditation and how can I get more of it? I remember somebody re referred to an app, which I wound up downloading at the time and tracking my five-minute, what I thought was meditation at the time, daily practice, which I did each day tracking on this app for 236 consecutive days. I think at that point I just stopped tracking it. But in doing so, I really learned the essence of what it meant to be still, to not feel like you have to react or respond, to go inwards, to understand what my mind was saying and what my body was doing as a result. And I absolutely fell in love. It was something that made me feel grounded and whole and it felt like coming home it was everything that I needed at that time to pick me up I sunk my teeth into it I learned about it I even got a yoga teaching certification which I never really used but uh, all part of that same practice of uh, really tuning into what's going on for you in, in mind and body and being conscious right this is all about becoming aware or present in what was in the moment rather than worrying about what will be or or bringing up the past and, and making that your future. So uh, it was everything that I needed at the time and more. So I would think that meditation is putting you in a better mental space, but at the same time from the practical situation that you described, you need to be making money, you need to get like back up on your feet. And that's not going to solve that just because you're feeling better mentally. So how did you now find what to do to restart your career? Yeah. So once I got fired from the job, I never went back. And I had some savings, you know, I'd done well in sales 
and I thought, you know, rather than going back into the industry, let me let me try my hand at yet another entrepreneurial venture. And in doing so, I took uh, about forty thousand dollars or so, and and I invested it in myself. And I think that meditation gave me the strength and the power to do so, right? Reduce that fear and those self-limiting beliefs and gave me that sort of like inspiration to say, you know what? You put all this time, energy, and effort into this master's degree. You have a boatload of experience. Try it. See what happens. And I had sort of this partner at the time, this friend of mine who was an engineer, and he created a, a product. It was a cash management device of all things in the age of you know smart pay and Apple Pay and all of these things. We were talking about cash. And I remember like lugging around what he created, which was a safe, like a metal safe that you would see in a store, schlepping it in Philadelphia, trying to showcase how we can connect in your small business, right? At the water ice stand, we can explain to listeners what water ice is if they don't know, but or Italian ice and the Philly soft pretzel factory who collect a lot of cash because of the value of their product, right? A few dollars. And um, I sunk a lot of time. I got investors. I was a big shot. I, I think I spoke to nine or 10 people in 30 days. And, you know, they wired me $150,000. And I had all this money. And I went out to Chicago and found an app developer to connect this, this cash management device where you would feed money into it. It would count it and collect it and keep it safe. And um, I went downtown into Philly. And I joined a co-working space. And, and here's what I did. I sunk my time and energy into that when I wasn't on as the single parent now as uh, with my daughter and ran that for about a year and a half and that failed miserably after about a year and a half I spent all the money investors weren't happy about that and I had to pick up myself and figure out like what's going to be the next venture what am I going to do now see I think people were listening to this were thinking with how hard your life was prior to this that this idea was going to hit it big and now you're a multimillionaire and everything's looking good again but yeah. now they're seeing you you have another blow that that hits you just when things are starting to look up absolutely and get ready right because the ride you know we're only going up on the roller coaster here but uh, certainly it was it was sort of stand up get knocked down right and stand up again and and that was really the journey as it as it began at that time so I thought you know what if I'm gonna try my hand at this entrepreneurial thing one more time, maybe I should do something I really am passionate about. What if I could spread this practice of meditation that enabled me to find some level of common peace, direction, clarity, purpose? What if I can create a business out of that? And I built right outside of Philadelphia in a little town called Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania, in a strip mall, a guided meditation studio. I had taken much money from investors, and I thought, I don't want to do that again. But you know who has money, Jeff? Banks. So I went to the bank with my best business plan. Thank you, MBA. <laughs> and I gave them, you know, as they described, the best business plan in 30 years. And I had this incredible idea that we would bring teachers and different modalities and different practices of meditation to the community, and we would give everybody a space to feel safe and comfortable and to go inwards, tune the world out, and it was incredible. I built this thing, sit meditation space. My daughter was so young, but I remember seeing her. I still have the pictures of like her in between the two by fours as we were, you know, building this beauty up. And it was incredible. For two years, we brought about 4,000 people through the door, kids and parents, uh, adults. And we had fire ceremonies and, and Reiki healing and all this like woo-woo that I had never even heard of. But people were practicing. I was like, wow, like this is a whole world. And what I realized quickly was I was no longer really doing meditation. I was running a business, a small business, or a small retail business at that, 
which was really hard. We couldn't pay the bills. We just couldn't bring in enough money. Uh, we were competing with everything, right? Just the noise of life, basketball practice, soccer, anything that was going on was a competitive thing for us. And um, I had a tough landlord. He wanted to bring me to court every time I was late on rent. And I just said, enough with this. I've got to shut it down. And I did. I made a decision. I think it was 2019, just around Halloween time. And somebody said, boo. And I responded and shut the place down. And it was the best and the worst day of my life. I felt like, oh, here we go again. You know, I, I, I built this thing. I was a community guy. I, I was doing something bigger than me, not for myself, feeling so good about who I was and how I was showing up. And yet the doors are closed, locked again. And I struggled with that from a pride standpoint. And I had to move out of a two-bedroom apartment, which I had moved into once our marriage had ended with my daughter. And now we had to move and scale down into a one-bedroom apartment. I put my daughter in the bedroom. I was living basically out of the living room. I remember at times we didn't have enough money. We were selling our furniture to live, like on Facebook Marketplace. And I wound up making a decision on um, going to work with a therapy practice as their mindset coach, right? As their mindful guy. I was getting people in the right headspace to do really tough therapy, to do their trauma work with the therapy practice. Hearing your story, like, even just one of these things happening to someone will be very hard to overcome. And I think we're on like the fourth, fifth, like iteration of just when it seems like maybe you figured out something where your life will come back together and you'll be in a good spot again, you get knocked down. The thing we haven't talked about in a while now is how religion takes a more prominent role in your life. So, so take us inside how you get to something that has some legs and takes off and where Judaism enters back into the picture. Okay. We're getting there. So basically I, move into this therapy practice. I'm working as an adjunct sort of coach. And just as I'm about to hit my stride and I start to get some local clients and referrals, COVID hits, I shut down that business. Aye. And here I am finding myself one night on a Zoom call. An old client of mine from the meditation studio said, hey, I work with a support group monthly and I would love for you to give them some inspiration. They're really struggling with something tough in their lives. I think you can give them some real inspiration on how they can tune in to their minds and their bodies, reduce stress and anxiety so that they can also be in a best position to do the really tough work that they're needing to do in their own lives. And so I had been able to join this Zoom call, which turned out to be about 75 religious, orthodox, some Hasidish women, mostly women, uh, dressed in all, you know, covered in, and in black. And here I am, a secular guy, giving over these tools of basically the practice of meditation derived from Buddhism, which I had studied in depth. And one by one, I would start to hear from them call after call. Like, we love what you said on that, on that Zoom call. Uh, you know, we'd love to work with you. Can we work individually with you? And I, I thought, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here, clients are calling me. Sure. <laughs> so I started to work with these individuals who were experiencing something called parental alienation or family estrangement. This is where I call it an adult child. Somebody usually above the age of 18 cuts off communication and ties with their parents. I, at times, estranged myself from my parents. I was stuck in so much trauma, so much pain, so much hurt. I wasn't able to communicate effectively. And so the easier thing was to push them away. And here, all of these children of these people sitting on this now Zoom call 
are experiencing the same thing. So as I met with these amazing people, one after the other, they kept asking me the same question, like, what's the basis for your knowledge? Like, where do you know this from? And at first I thought, like, who are you questioning? What do you mean? Am I, <laughs> are you saying I'm not qualified? They said, no, it's not that you're not qualified, but what you're saying is really incredible. You know, our Torah speaks of this. I said, wait a sec, you know, I had a bar mitzvah, remember in the snow? Uh, no Torah says what I'm saying, you know, thinking behind the scenes, what I'm saying is coming from practices of, of Tibetan Buddhism, actually, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, well, show me. And they said, well, we can't show you. I said, see, it doesn't exist. They said, no, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just that we can't show you. I said, well, then who can? And they said, well, you'll need a rabbi for that. And of course, I said, well, great, show me the rabbi. A few people referred the same rabbi, this incredible rabbi, Rabbi Israel Monk out of Lakewood, New Jersey. I remember calling him that first day. I said, hey, rabbi, I'm just a secular Jew. I don't really know anything about Judaism, but I'm guiding many people who are Orthodox, they're religious, and I feel like I might be guiding them down the wrong path. I could really use some help and support. I remember he said to me, Jason, I only have one question for you. And I thought, oh man, like, what's this going to be, right? Is he going to quiz me on, like, you know, what error, you know, the, the flood occurred, like, what's going down here? And I remember he said to me, what's your address? And I thought, my address, Rabbi? Like, that's where we're going? He says, yeah, what's your address? I was like, give him over the address. And he says, okay, I'm going to send you out a package. I want you to receive that package and meet me back on the Zoom call the same time, Monday at one o'clock, a week from now. I remember getting on that Zoom call after receiving this package, which, by the way, contained two books. One was the Chumash, right, five books of the Torah, and the other one was a book on Bechira, on free will, which I had never really heard of. So when I got to this, this Zoom call with the rabbi, I said, um, now what? And he says, page one. And that's where the journey really began. In an effort to support these religious clients, I seek and find this rabbi who agrees, by the way, he's like the rabbi to the stars, right? He's working with these successful business people and millionaires and I think even billionaires and then, you know, little old me who can't pay the rent. And I felt like, wow, like this is unbelievable. Like, is this what Judaism's about? Like people just giving of their time and energy. And over the next couple of months, I learned. I learned with this rabbi weekly, Torah, and it's all Torah, he used to say. And in doing so, uh, my eyes and my ears started to open to the different things that my clients would ask, like, do you keep Shabbos? Do you put on tefillin? And at first, I was sort of like a pride thing. Like, you know, I was this Jew, but I wasn't doing, quote, anything right. I wasn't, like, practicing anything. And that's where I started to think, well, maybe I should get back into it. And that's where... I said to my daughter one time, one weekend, I said, hey, how interested would you be in keeping Shabbos? And she says, you know, at seven at the time, dad, what's that? I said, well, that's where we take all the technology, we, we put it in the drawer, we turn off the TV, and we just hang out, the two of us. And she said, that sounds fun, you know? And I remember that this was in July, the longest Shabbos of the year. And we weren't really prepared. We didn't know from Shabbos tables. We didn't know from davening. We didn't really know from community. And so it was just her and I in the apartment. Sure, I cooked Friday night dinner. But what I didn't realize was 25 hours of game playing wasn't really so much fun. I remember we got through that longest Shabbos of the year. I remember looking at each other and saying, we will never do this again. Like never will we ever keep anything close to Shabbos. Like this is horrible. 
And I remember she went to her mom's that following weekend and came back the weekend after and said, Dad, let's try again. I said, really, Lexi? You really want to try again? And she says, yeah, but let's do it differently. And so we prepared differently. We made a Shabbos table. And every Shabbos after that that we were together, we did Shabbos. And it didn't look like Shabbos does today. First, it was no technology, no lights. And then we started to add a little bit of learning, daily halacha for kids, you know, things like that. Or my Legos and my slime, can I use those on Shabbos? But all those conversations began. And, and that set us on our path. So I remember while at the meditation studio, this Chabad rabbi would come in all the time to try to get me to take the Buddhas off the walls, to put on tefillin, and to, for me to hang a mezuzah on the door. I said, I think this guy is local. <laughs> this is Rabbi Kutlarski out of uh, Philadelphia, out of Lafayette Hill. And I called him up and I said, hey, we've been keeping Shabbos recently, but we're a bit confused and we need some help. They said, you know, why don't you come over to our house? We have davening by my house and we invite some community members. Bring your daughter. It will be fun. I said, oh, well, do you have kids? He said, yeah, like six boys and one girl. <laughs> I thought, great. You know, she's going to hate this. And I remember walking 25 minutes from where we lived to this Chabad house. And I remember she hung out with the boys and this one little beautiful girl. And, and I thought, she's going to hate this, right? Like, she's never coming back. And, and she said, Dad, I loved it. Let's go back. And, and she was sort of like driving the ship on this thing the whole time. And so we did. We went back. We never missed a Shabbos, actually, for seven or eight months, walking back and forth. It became some of the most incredible time and talks uh, that my daughter and I had. We went through the rain and the snow. And we started to learn, and everybody around us was helping, and we began the journey there. What do you think made her come back? Like, let's try it again. There's only one real answer. She's so deeply connected to God. I mean, Hashem exists for her. She can see his hand in everything. There's so many great stories that she tells over where she sees Hashem's help in this and that. And things started to change for us when we began to use Hashem's name in our home. You know, we moved during COVID from our one bedroom right next door because right, you couldn't do anything other than move next door. Our apartment got larger. I started to gain more clients when we were working together. And so, yeah, that first Shabbos was terrible. But I think there was the glimmer, that connection. Her neshama was totally connected. And I, I remember when she was home during COVID uh, and she realized that I was on the Zoom calls. And so she would say she would start to introduce herself to my clients, like give a little wave. And over time, she began to hold her own little Zoom calls on Fridays before Shabbos at noon with clients to give them a little bit of chazik, a little bit of nachas. And she built her own relationships with our clients, with my clients who have become like family to us. And along the way, they helped us. Uh, there's one client who became like a mother to me from Lakewood, New Jersey. She helped us to kosher our kitchen. Not only did she help us to figure out what we needed, but she handed me a check to say, here, go and splurge. Go buy what you need. And some clients helped me to, you know, they were sending Shabbos items and, and prayer books and, and clothes from Lakewood so that my daughter could dress sneezely, even though dad had no idea what a hemline was or a collarbone. And my daughter took on ownership of her own Yiddishkeit, and it was nothing else but inspiring for me and for this group. And there we were on our journey to becoming religious Jews. Uh, recently, over the last year, we moved to a community called Balakinwood. Uh, we uh, connected with an incredible rabbi in Rebetzin, the Davises, here in Balakinwood. 
and they, from an outreach and Kiruv standpoint, they really helped us. And we're pretty machmer. I mean, we're strict. I wear a yarmulke every day and sit sit and dive in three times and learn with different rabbis. And the true essence of Judaism is built into this story. It's the, you know, I, f- I forget the Hebrew quote. I wish I knew it off the top of my head, but it's get knocked down seven, stand up eight. And um, we've had an incredibly supportive community, at times tough with the family, as most people I'm sure have experienced as Bali Chuva, trying to say, hey, this is who we are, when our parents are saying, well, that's not who we remember you to be. Um, but we've stuck to it and we've stayed consistent. And I think over time, people realize that we're pretty serious about what we've done and the dedication that we've taken to be where we are today. But you have another layer to this than most people would have. I, I think a lot of Baal Shuvas would understand this idea of having to navigate the relationship with their parents, but you also have an ex-wife in the picture who I'm I'm assuming is not going on the same religious journey as you and you're sharing custody. So what, what's that like for your daughter living in these two worlds? My daughter would describe this as her double life. At times it upsets me, and she'll listen to this podcast. She speaks of her double life in the most positive, loving, and embraceful way. It's really incredible. By dad, she's learning brochas and Asher Yatzer and Shema and Amodeani and learning to um, put herself out there in the community, showing up by meals and being grateful to Hashem for everything that's being given. And then she goes to mom and she lives a Jewish life. They are reforming practice. I think mom does the best that she can with the information she has. And it's been tough because my ex-wife didn't sign up for this. We didn't agree to raise our daughter with the same level of, of religious focus. Do we agree, her her mom and I? No, we don't see things the same way. I'm sure it's you know one of the biggest reasons why we're not together. But my daughter always says, Dad, if somebody hasn't experienced Shabbos, there's nothing you can say that will get them to understand what it's really about. And she's right. I always say, like, People don't remember what you say, right? They remember how what you said made them feel. And when there's kindness and there's love and there's connection and there's togetherness, I think that will shine through. And ultimately, you know, together as best as we can, we'll try to help our daughter make decisions that that work for her and support her in, in her journey for whatever that would be. And of course, I wish that it would be a sneeous religious girl and I'm going to do my best effort to guide her in that capacity while still being understanding of how hard it is to be a religious Jew in this world of, of shiny things. And so the one thing we didn't get to talk about before we close the interview is the coaching business that came out of all this and where people can find you and exactly the kind of coaching that you're giving them. Because I would think a lot of people are hearing your story and they're certainly hearing this is a resilient guy who got knocked down a bunch of times and certainly knows how to get back up on his feet. And so if somebody wants to work with someone like you who's been through so much and now is clearly in such a positive place, how can they find you and what are the ways you could help them? So I have been knocked down you know, seven and gotten up eight. But because I added this practice of meditation, I was mindful each and every time I was doing it. And so I started to measure and figure out, like, what is it that I did to get myself out? How did I rebound? And what I realized over time was that you must pause and go inwards, get into that, like, level of stillness so that you could figure out what do you want, what direction do you want to head in, and then begin to align actions with that all the while overcoming fear, creating boundaries, learning to validate yourself and to communicate effectively what you need. I call myself a mindset coach. 
I believe everything is first created in the mind, right? The way you think about something is the way you speak about it to yourself and others, and then the way that you show up in the world. I help people get unstuck for a living. I get people out of their stress and anxiety, whether that's in struggle with their spouse, with work, with their friends, their social aspect or their community and their self. It really rounds out that whole person. And it's been amazing. I, I work mostly with religious Jews going through this parental alienation, but I also work with people going through high conflict divorce, co-parenting issues, people who lack confidence, but all of the things that I've been able to move through. I ask for Hashem's help and guidance. I rely a lot on my learning and my teachings from Torah, from the rabbinical support that I have. And I've been able to sort of give that inspiration to a lot of people. And that, that makes me proud and fulfilled. And uh, still, it's a work in progress. I'm now coaching coaches on how to coach my process just so we can get to more people. And that's going great too. And so how can our listeners find you either online or reach out to you directly if they wanted to learn more about what you have to offer? Go to my website, which is jasonblaucoaching.com. Reach out to me. And uh, I'd love to connect with anybody who's looking to better themselves, uh, to move into a Yiddish kite, or to just talk about how beautiful their children are. I love those conversations too. That is beautifully said. So Jason, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.